0: Heavenly Father, Father, as we endure the days that we have faced, uh, that we all face now, Father, of illness or separation and uncertainties, and Father, as we see what's coming for the world in the book of Revelation, uh, Father, let us not jump to hasty conclusions. Help us to see these things with proper perspective, to know that the world will know tribulation of various kinds, as Jesus promised, uh, before the, this age is over. Uh, But we are not to let fear drive our response. We are to consider these things as part of the state of the world we live in. You've told us that. And yet, Father, we've overcome this world by our faith, and we're so thankful for what we have coming. So, Father, help us to look forward, not backward, and to be excited for our future and not worried about our present as we study the events and the times and the place that we will all one day know very well. And we pray for that day to be very soon. So encourage us through this study tonight, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's begin our study of Christ's kingdom on earth, which follows the 75 days that took place after his return. So we have all preparations now have been made for the kingdom. Remember last week we studied how the earth needed to be restored to its uh, beauty after all of the turmoil of tribulation? Well, that's now happened and the temple had to be cleansed of the abomination, and a new and better temple built for the purposes of the kingdom. And now that has been done, all of these things done by God's supernatural power in just 75 days. And finally, the evil of the world has been set aside. Satan is bound, the bad guys are dead, and now all that remains is to move into the kingdom. So the saints are, pre- are, are assembled and ready to move in, And, of course, those who were still alive when Jesus returned but were unbelieving, well, they have met their fate in Hades. So, now we get to learn about what follows for the saints, for the kingdom period. And if we turn to the book of Revelation to consider these things, we're gonna be disappointed because what we find when we go to the book of Revelation, at least on the topic of the kingdom, is virtually nothing. Uh, Let's go back to where we left off in chapter 20, uh, verse 6, and we see this. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison. Uh, I chuckle at that because you see with me don 't you that we go from verse six to verse seven, and between those two verses, a thousand years of history just took place, and yet it 's completely uh, without mention in the Book of Revelation. We just jump right over the kingdom period. Why does the Book of Revelation tell us nothing virtually about that time? In fact, the only thing that we learn about the kingdom from the Book of Revelation is the length of time of the kingdom, 1,000 years. That's the only place in the Bible that you get the specific number, and that's what Revelation adds to our knowledge, but everything else we would know about the kingdom, everything that would fall between verses six and seven is given to us outside the book of Revelation, which is why it's not covered here. The book of Revelation is not repeating things that can be found elsewhere in the Bible, and the Bible is literally filled with detail about this period of history that we're all gonna know and enjoy together. The kingdom is described in the Torah and the beginning of the Bible. It's a major theme of the Old Testament prophets. It's in the Psalms. Uh, it's in the minor prophets, major prophets. If you go to the New Testament, it's in uh, many of Jesus's parables and other teaching. The epistle writers even speak about it at times. And so if we're gonna learn about the kingdom, inevitably we have to go outside the book of Revelation. So for tonight and next week, And maybe even in the week after that, we won't spend a lot of time in the book of Revelation. So tonight, as we start that exploration, I wanna start with something about as basic as you can get, which is the term kingdom itself. In my experience, many Christians operate with a very limited, uh, sometimes even superficial, understanding of their own eternal future, of this place that we call the kingdom. The concept of the kingdom, or as some today would probably generally call it, heaven, the idea of heaven is largely limited to some very simplistic thinking. You've probably heard of the pearly gates, or in this case, I guess, the the wrought iron gates. But anyway, the idea that there's some place in the clouds, up in the sky, we all float up there, we have wings, harps, and angels, and, and all the rest. That understanding is vague at best, and it is largely without substance or meaning. Where do most Christians get this vague understanding of the kingdom? Well, I I have a term for where we get that idea from or that teaching from. I call it hallmark theology. Now, this is not meant to be a negative comment about the, the uh, greeting card company. I mean it more from the standpoint that what you see in a lot of greeting cards when it comes to things like heaven or uh, sympathy cards for people who've lost a loved one or uh, you know, even cards you might share with someone when you're trying to sympathize with them over the loss of a pet. Uh, many of these things give the appearance of truth, but they're just notional, sentimental uh, ideas. They don't have any basis in reality. And so, as a result, many Christians live their whole lives with little more than that kind of thought in their mind when they turn to the topic of heaven. And that's so ironic and, frankly, unnecessary because the Bible speaks extensively about the coming kingdom and about what life there will be like for all of us. It uses a variety of terms. It has a lot of descriptions. It has a lot of pictures or shadows, as the Bible might call them. And the kingdom itself is probably the most frequently mentioned topic in the Old Testament, second perhaps only to the Messiah himself. And when you look from Genesis to to Malachi, the whole of the Old Testament, there's virtually not a book that doesn't touch on the kingdom in some way. And then you move to the New Testament, and in the New Testament there are so many discussions about the coming kingdom. There are over 160 mentions of the kingdom in the New Testament alone, 125 are found in the Gospel. Paul talks about it, Jesus talks about it. Uh, It's throughout the Bible. I mean, you almost have to go out of your way in reading the Bible to skip over the things about the kingdom that are in the Bible. And so here we find ourselves in the last book of the Bible learning one and one final piece of information, that it's a 1,000 years long. And with that, we gotta go back and get all the other information. So let's begin with an understanding of what the kingdom itself means, as I said, the terminology of the kingdom. If you look through the whole of scripture at the idea or the concept of the kingdom, you find that it's developed throughout scripture in a series of four steps. A progressive revelation about the kingdom. It starts very early in the Bible in Genesis and you find in Genesis that there's a promise being given by God to Abraham and his descendants. This promise is of a corrective action by God to reverse the effects of Adam's fall, of the sin in the garden. And this promise articulated in the Abrahamic covenant, repeated later in Davidic covenant and so on, it can be summed up this way, that the nation of Israel would have an inheritance in a land of God's choosing, and in that land they would have a posterity of descendants, they'd have a perfect king ruling over them, and they would live in unending peace and security in this future land. And there were many generations of believers, including Abraham himself, as the writer of Hebrews here mentions, who looked forward to that fulfillment, to the promise being fulfilled, when Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 says, All these, they're speaking about men like Abraham and the Old Testament saints, all these died in faith, notice, without receiving the promises. So the promise of the kingdom never came in Abraham's time. They welcomed it, it says, from a distance, knowing that they were just exiles on the earth. They were just waiting here for their true home to appear in the future. Now, in the course of time, God was ready to give Israel the fulfillment of that promise. And so when the Messiah came and when Jesus was baptized by John, that ushered in the proposal that Jesus made to Israel. What was the proposal? Well, Israel proposed this, accept me as your king, I am the Messiah, receive me, and I will give you the promised kingdom now. He said it simply, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Israel heard that and rejected it. They rejected their king when he came to them, as we've been studying in the book of Matthew on Sundays. And so as a result, Jesus withdrew that proposal for a time, and that kingdom was taken away from that generation of Israel. In the place of that proposal, Jesus then embarked on a new effort called the kingdom program. And the kingdom program is given to the church, to Gentiles principally, who now become the bride of Christ in place of what Israel in that time could have had, at least that generation, and now with the proposal temporarily withdrawn the program of the church is to go about recruiting others to join this future kingdom so the program advances the call that jesus started which is believe that the messiah has come obey that call and you too can become part of the kingdom spiritually speaking you're part of the kingdom the moment you believe you have turned in your earthly passport and you have received the passport to the kingdom but the kingdom is not here yet Unlike in most earthly circumstances, when I move from one country to the next, I have to go there first and then I get my citizenship after I arrive. Well, in the way God is working with the kingdom, we're asking people to get their citizenship first so that when the kingdom arrives, they'll be welcomed in. That is the program and it continues until the Lord puts an end to the program by calling his bride up to be with him in heaven. We call it the resurrection or the rapture. So as we've studied that moment already, we know what comes on, goes after that, then we have the tribulation, and then eventually, the Lord's second coming. And when the Lord comes as promised the second time, now the kingdom concept matures to the final step. It becomes a literal place, as it was always intended to be. And at the point that it becomes a literal place, God fulfills all that he promised to Abraham and his descendants, and in fact, to all nations that are participating in that kingdom by faith because that too was a promise he gave to Abraham that through his seed all nations would be blessed. So the concept of the kingdom progresses from a promise to a proposal to a program and then ultimately to a place. As we stand here today, we live in that period of time of the program still waiting for the place to appear. And as we study now, we're looking at what it means for that place to come onto the scene, to know what it's going to be like when we're there. It's a time, a very real time, a very real world. In fact, it is the same earth that we have today, just obviously it's been renewed in a new and better way. And it will be our home. It will be ours for a period of history. With land, you'll have a farm, you'll have, you'll have possessions on that land, uh, you will have things that can never be taken from you, and you'll enjoy it for a thousand years. We'll be absent diseases, we'll be absent sorrow. There'll be nothing about us or nothing in the world to disturb our joy and peace in that time. Those are the things the Bible promises us. But even beyond that, in this real place, we're going to have meaningful work. And not work that's hard, far from it. We'll have work that's easy and enjoyable. We'll have relationships that we enjoy. We'll have natural beauty and and things on the earth that we have always had and better still, and we'll enjoy those as well. And we will know what it's like to know the Lord, to worship the Lord, and to serve the Lord in an intimate, personal way that we yet have never experienced even now. Now, I can't tell you exactly all the details of what life will be like, what the earth will look like, and what, uh, what the earth will, uh, how it will be to live day to day, what our everyday life will be like. We don't have all the detail that we want, um, but the fact that I can't tell you everything doesn't mean I can't tell you some things. There is still quite a bit that we can know. One thing I can assume, even before we look at the scriptures, is whatever you find enjoyable about this world, don't think that the next one isn't going to be as good. It's funny sometimes how people will start to think about these things and wonder if they're going to enjoy the world they're going to if it doesn't have something they enjoy about this world. I think it's a short-sighted assumption to think that the God who made this world doesn't know how to make your next one better. I can assure you that that's not the case. The beauty and the suitability of the kingdom earth is going to make the beauty and enjoyment of this earth look like a second-rate option. Now, Moving on, our goal today is this, and actually for the next several weeks. It's to know what we can know, without exhausting everything in the Bible, for we don't have that much time, but to know what we can know so that our understanding of this place and time will grow and that by coming to understand it better, and here's my real goal for you, it would be that you can look forward to it even more. As I like to say, the more real that world gets, the less real this world will be. And the more you think about kingdom life, the more you'll find yourself living for that life and not for this one. As Hebrews 11 said, you'll be thinking about this world as a place of exile, not as your home. And since there is a lot about what we can say, I wanna put this into some kind of structure. Let's look at the kingdom from a structure of four parts. First, let's look at the order of creation, how it changes the nature of the world, mother nature, as some would say. Let's look at how that changes. Uh, Geography, borders, and government. That's tonight. Next week, we'll look at people, the daily life, the death and, and daily life of people there. Uh, We'll also look at Jesus in the kingdom, his home, how he functions there, the nature of worship uh, of Jesus and the operation of the temple in that time. And then we'll conclude with a war that we're told will finish the period of the thousand years. We need to look at that war in detail. So let's start with the way creation changes during the kingdom period. And interestingly, if we're gonna understand the way creation changes, the nature of things in that time, we first have to go back in time to learn how it came to be the way it is now. And this is a story I know that many of you probably have, have uh, studied, so I'm not gonna go into it for too long, but I do wanna give a bit of a summary for everyone's sake. When Adam and woman sinned in the garden, the Lord responded to their sin with a series of pronouncements in chapter three. Let me give you a piece of that. In Genesis chapter three, verse 17, the Lord speaking said, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, so the Lord responded to Adam's willful sin by cursing, notice, not Adam, but the ground. Or we would say the earth itself. Literally the physical earth and by logical extension, everything that came out of that earth was being cursed at the same time. Now a curse from God is a pronouncement of judgment that results in destruction. There is no redeeming a curse. There's no way God's curse can be undone. So the earth will one day be destroyed and replaced, and that's something we'll study soon when we get done with this period of our, our, get done with the, the kingdom period of our study. In the meantime, the nature of creation would change, God said, as a result of the sin of Adam, starting with the need for mankind to toil to produce food from the ground. Now again, it's interesting to think about this because I think many of us just take for granted the way the world works for us today. We don't give much thought to it, but the reality is it wasn't always this way. The Lord declared that after the fall, the earth would produce thorns and thistles naturally. So what that means is, apart from the toil of man, the earth by itself will just produce weeds and unhelpful plants. That is now the natural produce of the earth, so to speak. Only when man cultivates it, only by the sweat of his brow, God says, will we be able to turn the world to a place that produces food or produces the kinds of things we prefer and enjoy. So it's a work, an effort for man to get the world to give it what it needs. Before the curse, the man that was in the garden, Adam, he enjoyed a garden that we are told produced fruit of all kinds naturally. So in other words, without any work on his part, the garden was constantly producing fruit and food of all kinds. No weeds came up no unhelpful plants got in the way. I mean, wouldn't you like to garden that way? Adam just needed to walk outside his door and he found food everywhere he looked, just ready for him to eat. That was the way God created the world for Adam. It was now changing as a result of the curse. Furthermore, the days of men and women would now be numbered, God says. He says, notice in verse 17, all the days of your life. That implies you have a limit to the number of days. That was not the original plan. The spirit of Adam died in the moment he ate of the fruit. But his physical body was not dead because the physical body was made by God to last forever. And it would have. And even after Adam sinned and his, body now, his soul now had been corrupted by his actions, nonetheless, his body was still immortal at that point. So God took the body and put it in a state to match what was going on in the spirit. By this decree, he now puts death, physical death, into place for Adam. Everything that comes from the ground will return to the ground, he says. So Adam's body, if you remember the story of creation, was formed by God using earth to create his physical body and then his life was given to him by God's breath. So his spirit was deposited into a physical container that was made from the earth. That's why his name is Adam. Adam in Hebrew is the word for earth, for dirt. So he now is under a curse of death for his body because it came from the earth. But also, if you look at Genesis 2, all the animal kingdom was made from dirt as well. So all animals now are under a curse of death because they too are from the ground and the ground has been cursed. So the Lord institutes a process of death which is going to happen through decay, that is, the, body, uh, the physical body will succumb over time to disease and frailty and wearing out, and that's the, the plan of God for the world. He didn't institute death as an immediate event, he needed men and women to live long enough to reproduce, so the death process is slow, but it does come. Of course, there's also instantaneous death from a variety of ways, but that's a result of sin. But the fact is, no one can live forever even if you avoid all of the violence that's around us. All of those changes are different from what the Lord did when he created things originally. Without sin, Paul says in Romans, there would have been no death. So... Neither humanity nor any creature on earth would have ever died except that Adam produced sin, and sin led to God's response, and the response of God led to physical death. So after the fall, what do we now see in creation? Well, we now have these fundamental differences in what it's like to live on this globe. It's hard to work the land. The land does not produce things naturally to our benefit. We die, we wear out, we're succumbing to disease and all the rest. Go a step further in history. After the flood, in Genesis chapter nine, we read this. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Well now, following the flood, the Lord makes more changes to the creation that he started with. Now he gives mankind the permission to eat animal flesh in addition to eating vegetables. That's up till that point, men ate plants only, as God says in verse three. Uh, Everyone was a vegetarian by God's design. And now after the flood, God gives permission for mankind to eat animals. And although the text does not say anything about what animals will eat, uh, the implication here is that animals also are now able to eat one another. Now why did he make this change? Well, the safest assumption is that since the flood has just finished, the earth is largely void of usable vegetation, at least for a time. So without meat to eat, animals and mankind would have been at risk of starvation without the supplement of meat to eat for at least a time. Likewise, there's a good theory that there's a change in the earth's uh, climate following uh, the flood, that change in the climate may have made it harder to grow crops for a while. There's, there's various things that could explain why this needed to happen now. The, the point for tonight is it had a fundamental change in the way we deal with the animal kingdom. To protect animals from quick extinction once they were made food, God leveled the playing field by placing the fear of man into the animals. The animals previously were unafraid of men because they had no reason to be, And presumably, they also lacked fear of each other, because we assume there were no predator-prey relationships until this moment. No one was eating meat, so no one was afraid of being eaten. Animals were uh, essentially friends with each other, or ambivalent at worst. Now they're adversaries in many cases, and they are also afraid of man, because man sees them as dinner. So now we have, following the flood, animals attacking animals, men attacking animals, animals attacking men in case of self-defense or out of a, a desire to eat. So the world that we know now, the one in which it's hard to farm, animals can be dangerous, people can be dangerous, we eat meat and all the rest, all of that represents changes that God made from his original design to creation. And as a result, you have to now look back and say, where is God going? as he seeks to restore things to a, t- a time and place of his choosing. Well, he goes back to the Garden of Eden. That's our target. That's the, the standard that he sets. That's the standard he brings us back to. And we start to see those changes in the kingdom. If you go to Isaiah chapter 11, verse six, here's what we're told about the animal kingdom and its relationship to man in the time of the kingdom. Isaiah eleven six, six, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the water as the waters cover the sea. So... One of the first comforting things you get to learn about life in the kingdom is that animals will exist with us in that time. You know, I often get questions from people about, will my pet go to heaven? Will I see my pet when I'm in heaven? Well, uh, I can't say whether you will see your pet. I mean, we will see animals there. We'll see uh, predators being friendly with uh, prey, as you heard, lion and and lamb and and wolf and lamb and so on. Naturally, they're friendly now because they're not eating each other anymore. There appears to be a return now to the time of the Garden of Eden in which there were no longer predator-prey relationships at that time. You also notice it said that the lion is eating straw like an ox. Again, a confirmation that animals are moving back to the state they were in at the time of the Garden of Eden. No need for the lion to eat meat if they're not uh, acting as a predator anymore. But to the question of your particular pet, remember that when we die now, we don't go directly to this place, we're going into the heavenly throne room and we're waiting for this day to appear and souls go into the heavenly throne room. To our knowledge, there's no soul in an animal that can be saved in that sense and so we wouldn't expect to see a specific pet there, although the types of animals you've had as pets very well may still be there. Now, that's most of them. There's certainly a pet that you will not see in the kingdom Uh, for good reason. Uh, He has a different destination. Meanwhile, uh, whenever we answer a question about heaven, we always need to be specific about certain details. That is, we need to make sure we're not talking about the wrong place. Some people think heaven is where God is. Well, it is for a time because that's where Jesus is. But when Jesus comes back here, well, heaven is wherever Jesus is. So heaven for us is, the long-term place for heaven for us is back on this earth during the kingdom time even if we're in the heavenly throne room for a very short time. And Isaiah says that when we're back here on the earth for that long period of time with Jesus, we will see a world that has animals in it, but those animals will not act the way we're used to. The other thing that was interesting in that passage is the way that it says that a young boy will lead them or a child can play with a, a deadly snake and not be injured. It shows that man's dominion over animals returns to the place that God placed it in the very beginning. That is, every animal can be domesticated and man can be in the position to domesticate or control any animal. Even a young child will have that authority over the animal kingdom. Their instincts against men will have changed back to the place of being very um, docile and agreeable and uh, uh, easily led by a child. And like that snake example, without any harm, without any worry. Next, the Lord reverses the curse of toiling to produce food in the kingdom. This we see in Ezekiel 34, verse 25. He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing, Also the tree of the field will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase and they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. Now this is obviously speaking about what God will do for Israel in the time of the kingdom and that's because Israel has a chief place there. But we're there too and it's reasonable to believe that most of what, if not all of what God says will be true for Israel will be true for his nations everywhere and he begins with this covenant of peace with Israel, establishing a peaceful time for them in their land. And he makes the hills of Israel a blessing for them. Notice some of the changes again. They'll sleep in the woods because if they want to because they won't be worried about animals anymore because there'll be no beasts or enemies to harm them. That confirms what we just saw. And then secondly, you notice the trees of the field they're yielding their fruit and the earth yields its increase. Now, you have to understand what this is saying. It's not merely saying when we farm the land, it'll just give more fruit than usual. What we're saying is you don't have to farm the land. You don't have to work to get this stuff. It's back to the Garden of Eden again. Trees are just throwing fruit at you. The, The land is producing fields of wheat without you having to plant fields of wheat seed. There is a movement of the earth back to the place where we have a natural abundance because God is providing it. Rain comes whenever it's needed. It's a perfectly cared for earth for our sake. This is a distinct reversal of the curse that God gave to man. And this will be true, in my opinion, not only for Israel, but for the world. So when you hear, for example that you will have an inheritance of land in the kingdom and that it might be a farm and you might work the farm. I wonder if sometimes Christians, when they hear that, think, gosh, that sounds like a lot of work. I don't think that's gonna be as much heaven as I thought. You're not understanding. (laughs) It's not a hard life. It's the opposite of that. Farming is a joy when you don't have to do any work. When you walk outside your door and your crops are giving you everything you wanted, There's, there's no work involved in that. That's the joy of the kingdom. Ezekiel goes on to describe more of that. Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all of your uncleanness and I will call for the grain. Notice that, I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Or moving on just a little further in that passage, he says, verse 34, the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, this desolate land has become, notice, has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted, notice who did the planting, and planted that which was desolate, I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. You know what, farming is easy when the Lord does all the work. And that's exactly what you're gonna find in the time of the kingdom. And I'm not saying that our life will be a strictly agrarian lifestyle. There's no indication of what variety there might be. It's only spoken of in terms of caring for the land. And that was uh, spoken to a time and to a people who were agrarian. So it perhaps was the easiest way for God to show them that life in the kingdom would be great but that doesn't mean it doesn't have other aspects as well. We just don't necessarily have those recorded. Nonetheless, the idea is simple. This is a picture of grace, and it's a literal uh, uh, demonstration of grace because the Lord will do all the work and we will receive all the blessing. So how is he ensuring that desolate desert places become uh, farmland again? What is that gonna actually look like? Well, Isaiah gives us a bit of that. Isaiah 30, verse 23 He says, he will give you rain for seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground and it will be rich and plenteous and on the day your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also the oxen and the donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, the light of seven days, on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruises he is, in, or of the bruise he has inflicted. So you notice there is some reference there to sowing uh, or to uh, uh, yielding and planting, etc. I think that's an indication that we will be working with the Lord, much in the way that Adam was called to tend the garden in Genesis, but at the same time, it's understood that the real work is done by the Lord. You notice it says that he will ensure that there will be a plentiful supply. He will ensure that the light of the moon or the light of the sun is is sufficient. In fact, he'll make it even greater than it has ever been. And then you notice he's even changed the geography. He's got streams on mountains where there weren't any before. So there's always plenty of, of water. That reference to the moon and the sun is a bit curious when you look at it because it's not clear whether Isaiah is speaking figuratively or literally. That is, if he was speaking figuratively about the moon being brighter or the sun being brighter, that's like saying that the life in the kingdom will be so great, it'll be like the sun is brighter. You know, it could be spoken of euphemistically, but it could also be literal. Now, if it's literal, you start to wonder, how do you survive on a planet where the sun is seven times brighter than it is now? Well, perhaps it's brighter without being hotter. Perhaps it has uh, a new ability to provide intense light for the sake of plants, to help with the development of, of fields of crops and so on, without it hurting us. I guess one thing's for sure, we're all gonna have a fabulous tan. Meanwhile, creation in the kingdom has moved closer to the time of Eden. Animals obeying man, predators not hurting one another, predators not even existing at this point, and the land producing easily. But There is one thing from the time of the curses in chapter three of Genesis that has not changed, at least not yet. At a point in time, God spoke this to Satan who had just tricked woman and ultimately man into sinning. Satan, as you remember, had indwelled the body of a serpent, of a snake, and used that cover to have a conversation with woman and fool her. And after that, the Lord said this to Satan and to the serpent specifically, he said this, the Lord God said to the serpent in Genesis three fourteen, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now in this particular part of Genesis 3, God was speaking specifically to the snake, not to Satan, but to this unwilling host that Satan had occupied. Now obviously uh, the snake was not a a willing partner in this charade. He's not guilty of anything. We don't know that he knew anything. It's just a dumb animal that God uh, created that then Satan indwelled. Nonetheless, God curses the snake. He tells the snake it's no longer gonna be on legs. Apparently, the snake had legs because before this moment, the belly of the snake didn't touch the ground. Now it will, it will crawl with its belly on the ground. That tells us that at one point it either stood upright or maybe just on four legs. Either way, this is now a change. This is done as a memorial. It's not done as a punishment to the snake. Snake couldn't care less either way. It doesn't know the difference. But by creating this change to snakes from what God had originally designed them to look like to this, it creates a living memorial forevermore such that whenever we look at a snake and the way it moves on the ground, it should be a moment of reminder to us about how we got to this place. That is, we came from that ground. We're going back to that ground. It's slithering on the ground. It's a way of reminding us why things are the way they are. And because it's a memorial, for as long as the circumstances connected with the serpent still exist, then the serpent will still have that form to make that memorial. And In the kingdom, the question becomes, will that curse be reversed? And therefore, will the serpent no longer roll around on the ground? Well, Isaiah tells us this in chapter 65, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Okay, those are the ones that get reversed. But then he says, and dust will be the serpent's food. But he goes on to say, that serpent will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So in that chapter of Isaiah, we're told that snakes, serpents, will continue to have the form we know now, the one that God created after the fall. That's a way of saying, when they eat dust, that's a way of saying their face is in the dust as they move. Why? Well, because in the kingdom time, the consequences of the fall have not gone away. Satan is still around. He hasn't been vanquished yet, although for the time of the kingdom, he's bound until the end of the thousand years. Moreover, the sin that was created from the moment of the fall, it too is not gone away, and we'll talk more about that next week. All right, let's move on. Let's consider other changes, and specifically now, I wanna look at the borders and the geography that will exist in that time, at least the ones we've been told about. First, and let's start with the one we know the most about, that would be Israel. Now, Israel will exist in the kingdom, as you expect, and Israel will exist in largely the same place on Earth that it exists now and always has, but the borders will be different, different from where they are today, but also different from any time they've ever existed in the past. Let's do a little bit of history there as well. God establishes new borders for Israel in a number of ways. He also eliminates those immediate enemies that surround Israel and have surrounded them historically. Let's start with where we are today, just as a reference point. Uh, Israel today uh, occupies that relatively narrow slice of land On the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, Uh, the little brown section in the middle, that's the West Bank, which is previously a territory held by Jordan that Israel captured in the 67 war, the seven-day war, or six-day war. And that, that represents Israel today. But that territory, the blue, basically, that territory is only a fraction of what Israel once possessed at the height of their power, which was under King Solomon. Back in King Solomon's time, here's what Israel possessed. And you can see now it stretches way up into what is present day Syria, uh, down in all of what is present day Jordan for the most part, uh, and even into the Sinai, which is present day Egypt. That was the zenith of Israel's power. That's when Israel was basically the superpower of the earth. And Israel has never controlled that much territory again since Solomon's time. So when Israel gets their land again in the kingdom, well, you would expect that God would give them back what they had at least with what Solomon had, right? But that's not the half of it, literally. Let's look back at the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants to see exactly what Israel was promised to get in the kingdom. So I've got the text on the left and I've got the map that we'll start to draw according to what we read on the left. So it starts back in Genesis in the Abrahamic covenant. God said this, in Genesis fifteen eighteen, he said, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land. Now God starts to map it out, just in some very early ways here. He says, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Let's draw those two. The river Egypt is a small trip uh, river, feeds into the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's been a historical border between Israel and Egypt uh, over the millennia, and so that's the southern border. And then the river that is Euphrates, that's the river that's in Iraq, and that river runs uh, northwest to southeast, and that's a border for Israel's land in the kingdom, which is well outside of anything that Israel has ever possessed. Now later, when Israel finally moves into the Promised Land under Joshua, God uses that opportunity to speak again about the borders of the land, and we read this in Joshua chapter one. Verse two, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. Now, look at the boundaries he gives this time. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Now, I've highlighted in red some of those terms. Here's what he just outlined. He said, first from the wilderness and up uh, in the north, Lebanon, the Great Sea in the west, and the Hittites, they occupied the heights, and so we have those boundaries sort of running roughly along the Jordan River on the west side, on the east side, and then we have those other borders, and they also repeated that the great river Euphrates was part of the border, so we have that still there. And then, I'm not gonna read this last passage in Ezekiel for the sake of time. I've just put in there all of the red words and indicate the spaces, the places that uh, reference spaces. So Ezekiel 47, you can read it 47, 15 through 20. Read that on your own later. But if we plot the geographical markers that are in this passage, adding that to what we already have, we add these. All right, so now, all of that is within the borders of Israel, that God gave the descendants of Abraham. And yet, they have never fully occupied all of that land and held it. The closest they got was Solomon. And then we add to that, that elsewhere in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, we're told that their historical enemies, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and others, all of them will be given, all their land will be given to Israel in the kingdom or be unoccupied. And if you draw a line around everything we just said, this is what you end up with. Now, those borders aren't super precise. We don't necessarily know how far to go in the case of some of them, but I'll go back one slide here. But it's a lot more land than you would ever have seen in any time of Israel's political history. And then Isaiah says this in Isaiah 14.1. When the Lord has compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, Then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land uh, of the Lord as male servants and female servants and they will take their captives captive and will rule over their oppressors. And then in verse three of chapter 54, Isaiah adds this, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. So however the boundaries end up going, they will be much larger than they are today, larger probably than anything Solomon had and different in that respect and it will consume their neighbors. Now if we look past Israel and we ask, well, what about the Gentile nations? How many will they be? Where will they be? Is there a Gentile United States or a Gentile Europe? Uh, Do we know what the rest of the world looks like? Well, I'm sorry to say we don't. The Bible is very Israel-centric for a reason, and it doesn't speak much about countries that are not related to Israel or Israel itself. And so beyond the initial borders of Israel and the countries around it, we don't hear much. We do hear a few things that are interesting. First, we hear that Edom, one of those neighbors that surrounds Egypt, uh, Israel today in southern Jordan, that Edom will exist as a nation, the borders will be there, but it will be a completely empty place. Not an animal or human being will ever set foot in Edom during the kingdom, but it will be reserved as a memorial. It will also be the location for the entry to the pit where Satan is being held, and the entry will be an open sore in the earth, so to speak, in which smoke is coming out all the time. And we'll know that's the place where Satan's hole is that that he was put into to go down to the pit, but no one will ever set foot in that place for the whole time of the kingdom, we're told. Secondly, Egypt will exist, and presumably in the same place it is today, but the first 40 years of the 1,000 years, Egypt as a nation will also be without a human being or any animal in the entire land of Egypt, and after 40 years, the Egyptian members of of the kingdom, those believers who have been given Egypt, whoever they will be, after 40 years, they will be allowed to go live there. Why are they given 40 years outside the land? Well, it's a memorial for how Egypt was the nation that stumbled Israel into idolatry, which is why they ended up spending 40 years outside their land. So God pays back to Egypt for them in the kingdom time. Beyond that, we don't know much about what we will have as Gentiles. We can say this, you'll have some place on the earth designated as yours, you'll be a part of some nation of people on the earth, and you will enjoy that time. I've got my request in for Maui. If I do get it, you're welcome to visit at any time. Those are the major geographical and boundary things we learn about the kingdom that we can get out of the Bible. But there are also natural changes to the land that we can learn, a few things there, starting with the mountain on which Jerusalem will sit. Micah says this in chapter four, verse one. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Simply put, the tallest mountain on the earth in the kingdom will not be Mount Everest. It will be Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the highest mountain on earth. And it will be such that people stream to it. Why? Because the temple will sit on top of this mountain and Jesus will be in that temple. So it is a mountain that draws people from all over the world. Next, Zechariah tells us that there will be new rivers, two of them, that flow off the top of this mountain during the time of the kingdom. Zechariah tells us in chapter 14, verse eight, in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the Eastern Sea, the other half toward the Western Sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. And the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse. You notice that? No longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. So the city of Jerusalem will sit on top of this mountain. The temple will be a part of that. And at the top of this high mountain, the highest mountain on earth, There'll be two rivers that come out from the temple. We'll learn this later in our study. One of these flows to the east sea, one to the west. What are these two bodies of water? Well, the one that's westward is the Mediterranean Sea. That's what's west of Jerusalem. And what's east of Jerusalem? Well, the only serious body of water directly east of Jerusalem is the Dead Sea. And Ezekiel, a different prophet now, he tells us that the river when it flows eastward, that half, the one that goes that direction, it will have a dramatic impact on the Dead Sea when it reaches it. Ezekiel 47, verse eight says this. Then he said to me, these waters go out towards the eastern region and go down into the Arba. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live, and there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes and it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it. From Engedi to Engelam, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. So one of the natural changes that takes place during this time is these rivers that form on the top of this new mountain, one of which flows east into the Dead Sea. Now, if you don't know the Dead Sea very well today, it's dead for a reason. It is one of the highest salinity lakes in the world, if not the highest. It's uh, impossible for anything to live in this water other than probably some very specialized uh, microorganisms, but nothing else could live in this lake. It's such high salinity. You can't even put a boat on it because the buoyancy is so great the boat would capsize. So it's a useless body of water as far as that's concerned. The only thing they use it for today is to mine minerals from the salt deposits. But in this day, the water that starts to flow in will make that water body fresh, and it will be teeming with fish. In fact, it'll have so many fish, the fishermen will be able to specialize in which kind of fish they fish out of that water. It says it will be that way from Engedi, which is a current day location on the southern end of the Dead Sea, to uh, Engelon. We don't know where that place is historically, but it's probably on the northern end if he's trying to describe south to north. And in any event, he says this whole thing is gonna be fresh except for the marshes around it, which will stay salt, probably as a memorial so that people will remember what was done there and glorify God for it. If you were to look back at Zechariah 14, where we just were a minute ago, you'll notice he also talks about the land becoming a broad plain. That's not Israel today. Israel today has a series of mountain ranges and valleys. It's not very flat at all except by the coastlands. So in the day of the temple and Jerusalem in the kingdom, There'll be a mountain there, but around it will be nothing but a flat plain so that there's no other mountain range to compete with it. From any direction you travel, you'll see the mountain of the Lord from a long distance. You'll be able to find it easily. We'll talk more about that plain uh, in a future lesson. Finally, on the top of the mountain, as I mentioned, there'll be the temple. The temple is the seat of government, and we're told in Micah chapter four, verse two, that many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths, for from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, there are several things you see there reflected in what we've already discussed. First of all, there are nations, many nations around the world, the Gentile nations who will be under the government of Christ, and they will make their way to Jerusalem because they know that's where the Lord is, and they wanna hear from him, let him teach us his ways, they say. We wanna learn the law, the word of God from him. Jerusalem is the capital of the earth and the seat of government. And Micah says in verse three earlier that the Lord will render decisions between these nations, including mighty distant nations, Micah chapter four, verse three tells us. And think about it for a moment. If you have to rule over people, if you have to make decisions for people, if you have to uh, have this role of governing people, well, it implies that you need to help them do the right thing. That is, they're not doing the right thing on their own. Well, that's an indication that sin is still present in the world, and that's why the world needed Christ's perfect judgment in order to rule it. If you're all perfect, if everyone was without sin, you would need ruling, not in the sense of what you see going on here. But because Christ is ruling in a world that still has sin in it, we'll talk about that sin next week. But because it's there and because you have Christ ruling, it's this interesting dynamic. We live in a world of sin now as well, of course, but what we think of when we say that is a world that's bad because of sin, because sin gets its way so often. And the law and the people who try to stop people from doing the wrong thing, they're imperfect, and they have sin. So even our law is done imperfectly, and our judges are imperfect. And so there's very little real justice happening anywhere you look these days. And that's what we think of as normal, Well, you have to think differently for the kingdom because while there will be sin, there will be a perfect, just, all-knowing, all-powerful ruler with a government that bends to his will at all times perfectly so that no one gets away with anything. There will be sin, but there'll be nowhere for sin to go. At even the first thought of doing something wrong, that thought is known by Christ, who knows the intentions of all hearts, And he can react with the government to put an end to the act before it ever happens. So sin never gets going. It's there, it's in the hearts of individuals, but it never moves outward and does any damage. That's why God can promise that the world will be without anything to disturb your peace or joy. Because although there's sin around you, it makes no impact on your life. That's the power of a God who rules with a rod of iron. Isaiah says that the government officials that work with Christ in this government will know his will instantly such that they're able to execute his decisions without any delay. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 24 says this, it will also come to pass that before they call, that is before those who call upon the Lord, call him, I the Lord will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Now he's talking about his ability to know what's going on on any point of the planet. Remember, Jesus is in the temple. He's in Jerusalem, and yet someone on the other side of the world in his government can have a thought or a need, and he answers them instantly. I believe that's what Paul means when he talks about us not knowing everything well now. We see dimly through a glass now, but in that day, as he knows us fully now, we will know him fully then. It'll mean that we have this way of communication with him that is frictionless and instantaneous. We all look forward to that day. The prophet Micah says that because of Christ's perfect and authoritarian rule in which sin never gets uh, a chance to even get going, then there'll be no need to train or plan for war or any conflict at all. Micah says this, in four three, he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. So although sin exists, it has no material impact on life, not in the sense that it gets going and has any way to ruin the nice things we enjoy about the kingdom. It's under perfect rule. Look at how the psalmist describes Christ's perfect rule in Psalm 2:6. This is the Lord, the Father speaking. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And that's also translated as, you will rule them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. So the Lord will break or rule... The nations with a rod of iron, it's like they're pottery and he can just come up and tap them with a rod of iron. Think about how easily you could break a clay pot if you were holding a stiff, you know, heavy bar of iron. You could barely even touch it and it would break. That's the power of Christ to bend the world to his will. But notice there are also judges And kings in that day, Micah says, and Micah tells these men and women, whoever they are, that they should show discernment in their ruling in Christ's government, which is a way of indicating to us there is a government. There is a structure underneath Christ. And that government will have to carry out his orders. So if Christ is gonna be perfect in rule, then his government officials have to likewise be perfect. And they will be, because that government will be made up of the glorified saints, people like you and me. In Isaiah 9, we read about the government. Again, he says this, verse six, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Notice, you've heard this, I'm sure, before, but notice, thinking of it from the standpoint of the government, it rests on his shoulders, meaning, in a sense, Jesus presides over a bureaucracy. But unlike the way we think of that word today, it's a dirty word today, in that day, it'll be a good word because it's speaking of a perfect system of government that executes his perfect justice and righteousness at all times. We'll learn more later about this next week, but the government is divided into a Jewish government and a Gentile government. We'll study more of that next week. Meanwhile, what do we know about some members of this government, just as a taste of it? Well, Israel's most famous king will come back and get his old job. Jeremiah tells us this, in Jeremiah 30, verse eight. He shall come about on that day, declares the Lord our host, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and I will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves, speaking of Israel, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I raise up for them. And Ezekiel says this this is Ezekiel thirty-four twenty-three. then I will set over them one shepherd my servant David and he will feed them and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd and I the Lord God uh, Lord will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them and I the Lord have spoken so simply put David is a believer like we are so David is resurrected like we are and like us David needs a job well, because of the covenant God made with David, he keeps the job God promised him he would have. He retains the role of leading Israel. Now, because Jesus is king on earth during that time, David's not number one. He's more like Joseph was in the time of Pharaoh. He's number two in, uh, over Israel. He is the prince, where we hear, instead of the king. And under David there will also be leaders. We're told by Jesus in Matthew 19:28 that the apostles would serve as the lieutenant's to David. Matthew 19:28 Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, those of you who have followed me in the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So The 12 tribes of Israel will be reformed and in the land of Israel, and each of them will have a leader, and each one of those leaders will be one of the 12 apostles, with Matthias being the one who replaced Judas, and they will all work under David, who will be the prince of Israel. Now, if you move to what we learn about the Gentiles, there's almost nothing to say. What we do know about the Gentiles, though, is that there is a government there, and that that government includes us. In Revelation chapter 20, we read this verse already, but look back at it again with me. The Bible says that John writes this, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they are told specifically, the tribulation saints specifically are told they reign, they have a role in the government with Jesus for a thousand years. It's not just the tribulation saints. If you go back to the parables in Luke 19 when Jesus teaches about the minas, similar to Matthew's parable about the talents, but in the one on the minas that Luke captures in chapter 19, the currency, the payment, if you will, is authority over cities. The one who did well with what Christ gave them to manage while he was gone is rewarded with more authority over cities in the kingdom. And that's teaching us about one side of the reward process that applies in the kingdom, the side that says for those who are faithful and uh, mature in their work for Christ now will be rewarded for their maturity with greater responsibility to lead in the kingdom. So uh, if you're interested, by the way, in the reward system of the kingdom specifically, we'll cover a little more of that next week. But there's also a great answer on our website dealing with just that question. An easy way to find it on the website is just go to the website and search for either minas or talents. That'll bring you right to the article on this, and it talks in detail about the reward system. Finally, and the last thing for tonight, very briefly, uh, understand not all nations in this time are created equal. There's a Jewish government over Israel. There's a Gentile government over the rest of the nations, but they're not equal. Deuteronomy 28, one, the Lord promised this to Israel. He says, If you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high, notice, high above all the nations on the earth. And then Isaiah adds in chapter 14, verse one, when the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join to them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Notice we read this earlier, the peoples will take them along and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them, the peoples, as an inheritance in the land of the of the lord as male servants and female servants they will take their captors captive and rule over their oppressors so gentiles uh, in terms of the nations of the world are secondary to israel israel is the superpower because that's where Jesus lives, and he has designated them as his people. And then there are also those within the population of the Gentile nations whose job it is to serve Israel in the land. That's their job. Instead of being a farmer, they're going to be a servant. Now, here again, if that sounds like drudgery or penalty, you have to remember the life of the world there is so much different than it is here. Just as farming in that day is a very different and joyful experience, serving God and serving God's people will likewise be different and joyful. It's a privilege in that time. All right, so that's what we've learned about the nature of the creation, the, na- the nature of boundaries and government and the like. Uh, all of that ruling suggests a need for it, and next week we're going to look at that a little bit. We're going to look at the issues of sin and of death and life in the kingdom, why that's there at all, how God is using it, what it tells us about the purpose of the kingdom, and so on. We'll also look at the reward system a little more detail next week. All right, well, with that, we're done for tonight. I'm gonna to take a moment to pray. I hope it's been helpful to you to learn these things. I hope you'll come back and continue in the study with us. There's so much more that we can still study about the kingdom, and we're all gonna be there soon, so why not get the tour ahead of time? And after I'm done praying, if you have questions, please send those questions to us by text. There's a phone number on your screen. Use that number to send us your questions, and we'll get to them as best we can tonight. Right after I pray, I'll start answering those, and I thank you for being a part of this stream tonight. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we give you glory and thanks for the kingdom. We look so forward to that day. And with each day here, as things deteriorate one reason to another, and as we grow older and our bodies more frail, our desire for that kingdom just grows ever stronger. We know you come, uh, you will bring it to us, Father. It will come in a day that you appoint according to your plan. And yet we also know the Apostle John said, come quickly, Lord Jesus, So if it may be possible, Father, to speed up your plan, we would pray for that same outcome. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Bring us the kingdom as soon as you can. Father, we look forward to that day with great anticipation. And Father, in the meantime, as we have days left in waiting, help us to be more effective in sharing what we know with others so they may join us. Help us to see that our mission here is one of sharing the good news, not keeping it to ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.